preaching of God's Word is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. We touched on this verse, these verses briefly last time, but focused more on that passage which follows, verses 15 through 24. We return now to consider more intimately these three verses, 12, 13, and 14. Luke 14, 12 through 14. You'll remember the context that Christ has been invited to the house of one of the chief Pharisees on the Sabbath day, and many others gathered, and they are sharing a meal together. And now he addresses this chief Pharisee. Hear the word of God. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just." These three verses for our consideration this morning, you'll notice that foundational to what Christ says is the knowledge of the resurrection of the just. And the word just here means righteous. So the resurrection of those who are righteous. This isn't to deny that there is a resurrection of the wicked. We saw that in Matthew 25, that on the last day, there will be both the righteous and the wicked raised up But the righteous will be raised up unto glory, and the wicked will be raised up unto condemnation and everlasting misery. Many have made the point that in this life, for the believer, it is good. In the intermediate state, when our souls are severed from our bodies, it is better, for we are at home, we're present with the Lord. But that's not the end for the Christian. At the resurrection, it is the best. When our bodies being perfected, our souls joined again with them, glorified together publicly, ever to be with the Lord. And yet we ought to remember that the opposite is true for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, this world is the best they have, and yet it's bad. They are under a curse. At death, it's worse. Their souls enter into unending torment. And yet that's not the end. The last day, their bodies being raised up, their souls united again to their bodies, shall be physically and spiritually incurring the just judgment for their sins everlastingly. Here Christ turns our attention more particularly to the resurrection of the righteous. Now we might wonder, how is it that Christ is able to speak of the resurrection? Isn't this a New Testament thing? Well, though some would consider it, that way. It's not. It's an Old Testament teaching. It's a biblical teaching. It's in the Old and New Testaments we grant. It's under shadows under the Old, where the fuller light shines in the New. But you can see this wondrous expression perhaps from the earliest record in Job's book, chapter 19. Job, experiencing the trial that we're all familiar with, says in verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. 
And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins, that is my inward parts, be consumed within me. Job had full expectation of the glorious sight of Christ his Redeemer on the last day, and that he would see not just in some bodiless uh, uh, vision, but in his embodied state, that he should be glorified even after his body had been consumed. And so Christ, realizing this, the Psalms have the expression of the resurrection as well, images under the Old Testament, now uses that in context. And notice the text in particular. Christ addresses this man. He said, also to him that bade him. Who is it that bade him? It's back in verse 1. The house of one of the chief Pharisees. This one bade him. He would have been a very highly esteemed man. A man who outwardly was very righteous. Who was considered to be a leader and teacher of the people of God. And now he addresses him. And he doesn't address him in private. It's public that he addresses him. And notice what he says. When thou makest a dinner or supper, a meal, a a banquet, perhaps we would say, he says, this is what you're not to do. You're not to call your friends, brethren, kinsmen, that would be larger family, cousins, aunts, uncles, nor thy rich neighbors. Now, this may seem at first strange, but we need to remember the purpose. He's not absolutely forbidding such gatherings, but he's rather forbidding it in this context. Notice, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. In other words, in our culture we speak of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If I do for you, you do for me. You see this all the time on social media. Someone posts something, you like it, expecting that then your next post they'll like. And it works that way, back and forth. If you go to their gathering, they'll come to your gathering. If you give their family a gift, you'll get a gift for you. And when that understood social relation breaks down, we become offended. Why didn't they come to my place? Why didn't they give a gift to me? I've been to their place. I've given them gifts. There's this understanding in culture, not only in ours, but in Christ's day, that we do for others that we may get from them. But notice, he corrects that and says as follows, When thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. What a gathering that would be in one of our houses. Those who are poor, they don't have the cultural standing that you and I perhaps have. They don't have the finances that you and I have. The blind, they can't see, they're helpless. The maimed, those whose bodies are broken. The lame, those who can't walk. Fill your house with these. Now you see, this is a direct challenge to that reciprocating principle. I'm going to give to you that you may give to me. Because these have nothing by which they can give back. They are fully dependent upon what is given to them. So there's a correction Seek not the reward of men. Don't do so that you'll 
have others do to you. Rather, serve the needy. But notice, this isn't just a lesson in sort of blank morality. It's the display of a life of faith in the resurrection to come. The church has long expressed her faith in the resurrection. Yes, we believe that Christ suffered, He died on the cross, He was buried, remained under the power of death for three days, and He rose again. But we also believe and profess that we shall rise again. Let me ask you a question to consider for a moment. How many of you thought this week of the next day to come? There you are ending your day, and you think, okay, tomorrow I'm going to be doing this, we're going to go there, we're going to have this in order. And so what do you do? You prepare. You make sure you have your clothes ready, you make sure food's ready, you make sure everything's in order, and then when the time comes, you're going about your day, whether it's for play, whether it's for work, whether it's for health, whatever it may be. You prepare for what's coming. Christ is calling us to a higher consideration of that very principle, that we should prepare for and live in light of that last day to come, the resurrection, as he says, of the just. And notice, in doing what the world doesn't understand, that looks at it and says, why are you wasting your time? You're never going to get anything back. We may say with them, well, we don't expect to get anything back in this life. But notice what Christ says. Thou shalt be blessed, for they, that is the poor, maimed, lame, blind, they cannot recompense thee, they cannot give back to you, they cannot strengthen you, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. We look for the time to come for our great provision of mercy and blessing and reward at the resurrection of Christ. What does this all teach us? But that the Christian's daily life, the Christian's daily living, the Christian's care for others is to be motivated not by what we can gain in this world, not even by reputations that we may gain in this world, but we're to be motivated by that last day that is coming, the resurrection of the just. Those of you who have gone through school already will know something of this principle. There you are in school, and you're studying, you're working, you're laboring, but why? Well, it's not really for the next day. It's not for the next class. It's not for the next test. You're actually exercising yourselves in order to be instructed and taught and learn skills so that for the rest of your life, you can serve your family, procure money, and serve others, and so on as well. You're investing in the moment for what's to come. Well, that's what Christ is reminding us of. We're doing things in this life because of what's to come, the resurrection of the just. Now, I asked you a question already. How many of you thought of the next day to come this past week? And all of us would say, to one extent or another, we did. Let me ask you another question. How many of you consciously thought of the last day to come? How many of you ordered your week, ordered your days, ordered your thoughts, ordered your actions, ordered your finances, ordered your invitations, ordered all that you are in light of the last day? That's what Christ is calling us to do. 
that we would order all of our things in light of the resurrection to come. Consider then two things for us this morning. Firstly, the resurrection of the just. And secondly, the life of the just. We start, in other words, with the foundation. And from that foundation, we consider then what is to follow. The resurrection of the just, firstly, and the life of the just, secondly. What is then this resurrection of the just? Well, we can consider a couple of things. Firstly, the timing. When is the resurrection to come? Well, we were told that in Matthew chapter 25. We saw that as Christ was discoursing upon this very truth, the last judgment, when it is that the king shall return. What is it that he'll do? Verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another as the shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. Now this is, in truth, a basic teaching. But since the 1900s, early 1900s onward, there's been a consistent error that has been propagated that says the resurrection is something sort of secret and unknown. The secret rapture, some speak of. That Christ is going to come secretly and then take His people out privately, unbeknownst to them, and leave the people, the rest of the people for a season. That's not the case. There is a glorious return of Christ that will come. And this is what Christ mentions. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, when He shall come in His glory... It's not secret. It's gloriously public. All the holy angels with Him. It's right for you children and adults every once in a while to look up into the sky and think of this. One day, you with your own eyes will see Christ in His glory descend. One day with your own ears, you'll hear the voice of the archangel. One day you'll hear the blaring of the trumpet calling all the earth to an account, the public assembly, wherein is the greatest assembly ever to be gathered for all men, all women, all children ever to have lived will be assembled on that last day. But what happens? Well, many things. But you'll notice, as Christ says, verse 32 of Matthew 25, before Him, that is before Christ, shall be gathered all nations. And so there are all people, all people groups. Every single individual will there be gathered. This raises questions in our minds, doesn't it? How many people is that? Where will it be? How will there be such an assembly that is able to be so gathered? And quite honestly, we don't have all the answers to those questions. But we have sufficient reason to believe it. Because the same God who created all things out of nothing has given us this, His Word. And we know that the hand of omnipotence is able to accomplish what exceeds our comprehension. And so we take it, as we express it, as an article of faith. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And we acknowledge that such a thing shall come to pass. But notice... That general resurrection includes not only the righteous, 
but the unrighteous. There's a separation at that assembly. Think of this for a moment. You'll be on one or the other side that day. One day, you'll be in that assembly, I'll be in that assembly, and we'll either find ourselves on His right hand, or we'll find ourselves on His left hand. That's an important distinction. It's not going to be like we've been in earthly assemblies and saying, okay, let's mix it up a little bit. You're over here, move over there. You're over there, move over here. That separation is ultimately final. Because he says to those on his right hand, come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, so on. He speaks of their righteous deeds. But then notice he says to those on his left hand, verse 41, depart from me, ye cursed. Here's the point. The ones on his right hand are blessed. And they're righteous. The ones on his left hand are cursed and wicked. All of us wish at this moment to think, I know which side I'll be on. I know, I guarantee it, I'll be on His right side. His right hand. But notice that among those who are on His left hand, there is confusion. Because when they hear Christ say, depart from Me, what do they say? They respond and say, listen, Lord! They use reverence, respect. When saw we the unhungered? When did we fail to serve you? In other words, before that moment, if you had asked them, whose are you? They would have said, we're the Lord's. We serve God. But Christ now displays their deception. So remember that as we carry on. Notice before moving further that this resurrection is bodily. It's not just that our bodies have decayed. We saw this in Job chapter 26. Uh, or 19 rather, verse 26 and 7, that Job, though he decayed in the earth, was confident his own body should rise again. And in his flesh, restored, he should see the Lord Jesus Christ. This is precisely what Paul asserts in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, you have it so clearly expressed as well, this bodily resurrection. There at verse 43, speaking of our bodies, it is, that is, our bodies are sown, planted in dishonor. It, that is, our bodies are raised in glory. It, that is, our body is sown in weakness. It, that is, our body is raised in power. And again and again in this chapter, our very bodies, though in the grave rotting and consumed, will be restored by God's divine power and raised up. Well, this is the timing. What is it that takes place to the righteous at the resurrection? Christ calls it simply the resurrection of the just. But notice He says, of these who enjoy the resurrection of the just, they shall be blessed. They shall be recompensed at that time. Well, several things we know will happen. The first is their bodies, as we've just seen, those sown in shame, sown in dishonor, shall be raised and made glorious like unto Christ. And so they aren't going to be made Christ, but they will be made like His glorified body. We see this, for instance, in 1 John 
and chapter 3. 1 John and chapter 3. John writes of this very thing when he says in verse 2, Beloved, now we are, are we the sons of God. But then he says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Do you remember how Job expressed it? I will see my Redeemer. I will behold Him. I with mine own eyes will see Him. And just as Moses was transformed by the presence of God, such that his face did shine, that the people of God said, you must veil your face. It's so glorious. It's terrifying. Well, here's a wonder for us. There will be no veil over our faces in heaven, but will shine brightly as the sun, resembling the brightness of Christ's glorious holiness. Romans chapter 8 tells us, that the creation, the creature, the world, groans for the revelation of the sons of God. At the resurrection, what happens? God raises up His people. He raises up others. But He says of His people, these are My children. He's openly acknowledging them. Brethren, if you're familiar at all with church history, you'll know that some of the godliest men and women have suffered the most tormenting accusations that did despise them and say, you're not the child of God. This shouldn't surprise us because Jesus Himself was ridiculed while on the cross. If thou be the Son of God, come down. And in tortures, at the Inquisition, there was often the ridicule saying, if you were God's child, Why would He let you suffer so as He lets you suffer? If you were God's children, why is your life not full of outward blessing? Why is your family not all of peace? Why is your bank account not full and overflowing? And so these subtle jabs, sometimes less than subtle, come against God's people. But brethren, on the last day, what is it that God's doing but saying, all you wicked men and women... Let me now declare, these are my children. These have always been my children. These are those whom I love. And so they will be openly acknowledged as His own. Likewise, shall their relationship be more fully stated. We saw that in Matthew chapter 25, that they are called the blessed of my Father. But notice as well in Mark chapter 10, a similar kind of expression, Mark chapter 10. And there Christ speaks of those who are His, that they will uh, ever be His, that they are uh, those who are the sons of God. Notice, for instance, in Mark 10, 29, Peter says in verse 28, Lo, we've left all and have followed Thee. And notice Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecution, in the world to come, eternal 
life. What's he saying there? He's making the point that God's people do suffer in this life. He's making the point that there are things we experience that are full of anguish. Some in this room, and others we know, have for the sake of Christ essentially known what it is to forsake brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands. This is not new. It's not peculiar to any one Christian. In various degrees, every Christian has something of this, but some suffer it more acutely. But notice, it's done for my sake and the Gospels. And Christ says, even in this world, there will be a provision given. What a blessing the church is. That though at times we know what it is to be under the displeasure of a parent for our following of Christ, others know what it is to be under the displeasure of a spouse for following Christ, others know what it is to be under the displeasure of children for following Christ, yet we assemble with God's people and what is God giving us? But spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children with whom we share that greatest intimacy... It's shameful to us that ever the word should come out of our mouth that these really aren't the people for me. These are the people God gives to us. These are our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. These are God's provision. And yet, in this life there's still the pain of trial and difficulty. But notice, he says, in the world to come, eternal life. He will show this relationship that this is His family and that will exist forever. There's much more that could be said of this. There's also the open acknowledgement of their gracious righteousness. You saw this in Matthew chapter 25 when the just are addressed, those on His right hand, He'll say, come, you blessed of My Father. And He'll speak of all the good things that they've done. And he says that they've done it unto him. You fed me. You visited me. You loved me. You cared for me. You clothed me. And they say, when did we see you? When did we do this? When was it so? And he doesn't say, well, you know, I was making it up. I had to put it in a better way so that they might think that you're better. He says, no. Because in your tangible service to others in my name, you did it unto me. Brethren, the just are not only those who are declared righteous by faith. That's justification. That's the way that God declares a sinner righteous. But having begun that work, what else does He do? He transforms them. He actually makes them personally a righteous people, a holy people so that that which He plants in them grows and matures, and they change their orientation to others. They begin to serve others. And Christ acknowledges this. He doesn't say, listen, your righteousness, your personal righteousness is perfect. He doesn't say that you've earned heaven. But He does say that the things done were truly done, sincerely done, faithfully done, And now I openly acknowledge it. And the world will see those 
who were persecuted. They will see those whom they ridiculed, and they will hear the voice of the King of Kings say, whatever else the world thought of them, I was marking every cup of cold water given in my name, and I here publicly declare the same and say, well done. Sometimes there's a subtle temptation for Christians to think that they must do, as it were, what the world esteems great things. If I'm going to be a faithful Christian, I've got to go and outdo everyone else so that my name gets remembered in history. It's essentially this thought that the world has. I want to outdo the Bill Gates of the world. I want to outdo uh, the others whose names are uh, exalted among men. And sometimes Christians think that. Well, you know, what am I? I'm a housewife. I'm a mother. I'm a single person. What can I do? You know, I, I read the Bible and I read about Paul and Peter. I read about Isaiah. I read about Apollos. I read about all of these great men who did these great things. But what can I do? I just have a child. I have several children. I have a low-paying job. I don't have much influence. But brethren, that's to think like the world thinks. If you're a mother, Christ has made you a mother. Christ has called you to that high calling. If you're a wife, God has given you that. And He's looking to you. And every meal prepared in love for Christ's sake, Christ is noting and saying, well done. You say it doesn't feel like that at times. It doesn't feel as if Christ knows that at times. It doesn't seem to me like He actually... No one publicly says to me, way to go, what a Christian service... Well, brethren, that may be so, and shame on any husband who does not acknowledge it, because even as the Scriptures say, the husband and the children will rise up and call his wife and their mother blessed. But even if a husband fails to do that, there's a greater husband who on the last day will say, well done. You've served the children I gave you. You've served the husband I gave you. You've been faithful in these, what the world considers, little things, now inherit the everlasting glory. And oh, what a blessing it shall be when those who are esteemed little by the world are then openly shown to be as esteemed much in God's eyes. Someone says, well, you know, I'm not a pastor, I'm not an officer in the church, I'm not an elder. Perhaps it is there are things in my life that disqualify me from ever being so. You say, okay, that doesn't mean that you aren't able to be faithful to the Lord, nor does that mean that Christ is unwilling to look upon your faithfulness without approbation, without saying, well done. One day, all those who are on the right hand will be openly shown to be faithful servants of the Lord. Now, we acknowledge this is not their righteousness by their own strength. It is their righteousness by God's grace. It's God who has worked within them. It's God who has transformed them. It's God who has given them grace to deny themselves, to take up their crosses and follow Him. Brethren, much more to be said about the resurrection of the just, but notice this. The resurrection is but the beginning of everlasting joy. It's the first day of a day that will never end. 
And the Christian, however low in this world, who has believed upon the Lord and served Him, will be forever blessed, everlastingly so, with the fellowship of God in Christ Jesus in glory. This is the foundation. Notice then, secondly, the life of the just. So Christ appeals to them and says to them that they shall be blessed. Don't do these things in this world in order to be blessed of men. Rather, call the uh, despised of the world and serve them, provide for them. Not expecting some reward back from them. Not expecting someone to stand up in a service and say, let me tell you all that this person did. We do it rather out of service to the Lord. Because of the resurrection. Notice he says, When thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Their present life is to be lived in light of the coming day. They're motivated not by the common sense approach of the world, not by the financial return that they might gain, not by the network of influence that might be multiplied. They're motivated by the truth of the blessing to come at the resurrection. There are things in faithful Christians you look at and say, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense what they're doing. It doesn't make sense how they're investing. It doesn't make sense how they're using their money. If they saved up their money, they could get bigger things, better things. But they simply provide for their family and then they give to the church. Do you know something? Financial giving doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense not only to low-paying jobs and low incomes, it doesn't make sense to high-paying jobs and high incomes. You know a temptation that we love to think, because I've thought it myself, is when we aren't making much money, we think, if I start to make more money, then I'll give. Then I'll provide. Then I'll open my home. Then I'll invite others over. Then I'll serve others. But brethren, it's interesting how that is always shifting. We get a little bit more, well, not enough yet. I need to get a little bit more, get a little bit more, get a little bit more. That's because the way we're reasoning is the way the world reasons. We're reasoning as the world does. Instead of casting our bread upon many waters, trusting Him to bring a return in due season, instead of sowing liberally that we may reap liberally, we say, well, I've got to get mine and provide for mine. And then when that's secure, then I may think of others. But brethren, that's to reason in the contained system of the world's reasoning. It's not to reason in the true system of God's order. If we live as it were only as the world does, we'll continue to function as the world does. Our spiritual service will be as the world is. But when it is that we live by faith, then it is our lives change. So we can say one thing. The life of the just preeminently is a life of faith. It's trusting God. It's looking at Him saying, He will be no man's debtor. He will not look and say, Oh, you've given a lot. I'm not going to give you anything. We trust Him who said, Every day as you seek first my kingdom and righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. We could ask ourselves at times, why do I think God is a liar? 
You say, why, why do, how do I think that? Because we often reason in terms of, well, I can't serve, I can't give, I can't host, I can't help because I may lose. I may not have tomorrow. I may not have enough. But God has already told us, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. All of it. What is all of that? It's food, it's drink, it's clothing, it's shelter. All of our needs are guaranteed to us by our faithful God. But brethren, let's be honest. We don't see tomorrow's provision. We want to see tomorrow's provision. Some of us are able to check our bank accounts and see we've got enough for tomorrow. Perhaps we have enough for next week. Perhaps we have enough for next year. But in truth, all of us know things can happen and all of that's gone in a heartbeat. We can do all of our securities that we want. We can make our investments. We can get insurance. We can get life insurance. All of these things. And yet all of us know that things, tragedies can happen that wipes out, nulls and voids all of those assurances. It doesn't mean we're not to be prudent and wise. But it does mean that that's not what is to govern our life. We're to be governed by the promise of God. We're to live not by all of the principles the world says are primary. We're to live by the principles God says are primary. We're to trust Christ. Yes, of course we are. To trust Him as our Savior. But we're also to trust Christ's Word. We gather and we have people over to serve them. Not in order to advance ourselves, but in sincerity to serve them. Think of this for a moment. When Christ served us, what did He gain? Now, a worldly person would say, well, let me tell you what He gained. He gained me. And aren't I a trophy? Aren't I something for God? Isn't it amazing that He has me in His kingdom now? Oh, what a a great privilege to God that ever I should be in heaven. Oh, what a blessing to God that all of my learning and skill and popularity and influence is now at His service. Oh, we'll let the worldly man speak and we know which side such a man will be on the last day. But the Christian says, what has God gained? He's gained dust. He's gained a rebel. He's gained one who can never repay. He's gained one that can never answer and be equal to what He's received. All the days of my life, mercy is following me. All the days of heaven are one unending reality of God's grace. He's ever giving. He's ever providing. Christ says it this way, when you've done the will of God, still say, we are but unprofitable servants. Do you know your best day as a Christian? You've never met what God has given you. You've always been beneath what God's given you. You've never equaled it. You've certainly never excelled it. At your best, you're still an unprofitable servant. And so the Christian realizes this. The Christian sees, I don't give to God anything he needs. God says this to us. He says, listen, you bring your sacrifices and offerings. What is this to one who owns the cattle on a thousand thousand hills? You bring this gift and that gift. What is this to one who calls the stars by name? What is this to one who made the heavens and the earth? You are nothing. 
compared to me. Now, the weak one says, oh, this is consuming. I can't bear such a thought. But faith enters in and says, what does that mean? But that God in mercy and grace has set his love upon me. I'm nothing, but he has brought me into his family. I'm nothing, but God has showered me with blessings of grace and enriched me with priceless jewels of righteousness and peace. Now, brethren, that's what God has done for us. That's what Christ has done for us. Not because He knew that investing in us, He'd get gain, but because of love, because of service, because of care and concern. If our King has done so, surely we, His subjects, are to do so as well. To love one another freely. To open our hands and to give. To serve. To bless others. To help others. Our motive is not earthly gain. The life of the just is not looking and calculating to say, well, this service will result in this kind of payback, so I'll do it. This service will result in a better payback, so I'll do it. The motive is rather the love of God and the looking forward to the world to come. That in this life, we don't expect great blessings and rewards as it were, but in the life to come by God's grace, Oh, what a word it is when Christ will say, looking us in the eye, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to the paradise of God. If you're a believer in Christ, that is your certain future. It's more certain than the breath you're about to take. It's more certain than the fact that you think you'll wake up tomorrow. If you're a Christian, the Lord of glory one day will look you in the eye and say, well done. Enter into my rest. Enter into heaven. Enjoy forever the riches of glory. What is there in your life that matches that? What amount of money is equal to that? What comfort to your body matches the everlasting comforts of heaven. When the Christian understands this, then their motive changes from what I can gain in this world to what I'm going to receive in the world to come. This leads to their action. Their faith, their motive, leads to an action. What is it? Well, one thing it is is self-denial. I'm denying myself. doesn't mean we get some sort of braid of uh, afflicting things and start beating ourselves on the back. But it does mean that we say no to ourselves. This culture in America says only say yes to yourself. You want it, go get it. You want something else, go get it. You don't want that on that meal, don't have it. You want your life to look this way, go make it so. But the Christian says, though I'm a citizen in this nation, though I'm a subject of this culture, yet my true citizenship is in heaven. And I live not by the rules of this land as those supreme guidance, that supreme guidance. I live rather by the voice of the King of Kings, who says, if you would be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's not saying that we have to have this amount of income only. There are rich people in God's kingdom, there are poor people in God's kingdom. But he does say, that we're to be exercising whatever our circumstances are, self-denial. But why? 
Why are we denying ourselves? Well, among other reasons, it's this, so that we can serve others. We're saying no to ourselves in order to say yes to others. We're saying no to our own comforts that we may comfort others. Perhaps we get a raise at work. We're grateful for that. We're able to provide for our families more. But also the mind of the Christian says, I'm able to provide for Christians more. I'm able to serve the church more. Perhaps our schedule opens up in the Lord's providence and we say, I've needed this. I've been running around, as we say, as a chicken with its head cut off. And now I can more invest in my family. It's true, you can. But you can also invest in others who stand in need. You see, our actions of saying no to ourselves is not unto inactivity, it's unto a serving activity to others for their temporal and everlasting good. So the life of the just. Well, we close, brethren, with this. There is need in each of our lives, I'm well aware of it for myself, for significant examination with this question. Does my life display the hope of the resurrection? Is my life being lived in such a way that my time, my finances, my possessions, my activity believes that there's a resurrection of the just when Christ will say, well done. When Christ will openly recompense us, will He will openly display these blessings. And as we do, we ought to ask not only what we're doing and why we're doing it, but perhaps a more searching question is this. What am I not doing? And why am I not doing it? It's right for us to ask, what am I doing that exhibits a life of faith, trusting in Christ and the resurrection to come? We should also ask the question, are there things I'm not doing that I should be doing in light of the resurrection? Are there ways I'm not serving that God could make me serve? Are there ways that I'm not helping that I could help? And you'll realize that so soon as you start to ask those questions, more clearly the arguments against doing them will come to your mind. Well, if you do that, that'll demand self-denial. If you do that, that'll demand a portion of your income. If you do that, you'll demand time given to those things. And all of those arguments are right. But there's something that knocks down those obstacles. And it's the resurrection of the just. The fact of the resurrection makes us look at those obstacles and say, well, that would make sense if my life was only concerned about this world. But my life is not only concerned about this world. It's concerned about the life to come. Now, obviously, circumstances are different for different individuals. And God may be opening a door for this one that He's not opening for another one. He's not calling us to give the same amount. He's not calling us to spend the same time. But He is calling us to serve sacrificially, joyously, lovingly, in faith that God will call no man debtor. But on the last day, He will openly recompense all who have trusted and by His grace have served Him. There is, of course, a reproof to earthly mindedness in this, but there is all the more an exhortation and encouragement to a heavenly mindedness. Brethren, it's good for you to sit down at the day's end and say, what's coming tomorrow? But you should extend that. It's proper for you to think, okay, if the Lord gives me life, 
what should I be doing for five years from now and ten years from now? But you should look further than that. Some of you young people are thinking, what am I going to do for my job? Will the Lord bring me into the estate of marriage? What if I have children? All these things are right and good to think about. But there's something true of each of us, regardless of other circumstances. What about the last day? How should I live in light of that time? That day will come, more certainly than a new job, more certainly than schooling, more certainly than children, than grandchildren, than health, than sickness, than anything else. That day will come. Here the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the resurrection and the life, says, be sure to live for that day now. That that day find you not on the left side of himself, but rather on the right side where he says, come ye blessed of my Father, and enter into the kingdom of God prepared for you and for all His beloved people. Would you stand with me then for prayer?